Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6, and let us study the Christian armor this morning as we finish up our study of the epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to take up at verse 10, and with the Lord's help, we'll finish this chapter in this first assembly. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Father in heaven, Thou hast called me to make the text plain. I need thy help. Bless me to make it manifestly plain and simple. I call upon thee, O Lord, to convict the hearts of these hearers and the heart of the speaker, that together we will humble ourselves before these words and we will not be content with an explanation of them, but we will seek an application of them in our lives. Have mercy upon us, Heavenly Father, lest we walk out of this place and have not seriously and spiritually profited by humbling ourselves and taking the Word of God and changing our lives. Let us not behold ourselves in the mirror of God's Word and go our way, forgetting what kind of a man we are. But let us look in that mirror and see our imperfections and faults and our sins, and confessing them to Thee, let us conform our lives to Thy Word. Help us to this end, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Finally, the last lesson of the book of Ephesians. My brethren, these Ephesian saints that have been chosen in God before the world began... Though their eternal destiny was as certain and as secure as that of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, there was much for them to do in the way of laying hold of that eternal life and knowing the assurance of it and in pleasing the God that had saved them. And the final lesson is, my brethren at Ephesus, there is an unseen spirit and he has armies of authorities that work for him, the fallen angels, And he is out to destroy your testimony and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The Lord has all the might and all the power, but you have to avail yourself of it because it says, be strong. When it says be strong, that is an imperative verb construction telling you to do something. The Lord isn't going to do it for you, but he will provide the strength if you'll do what He tells you in the next few verses. Be strong in the Lord. We don't want to be strong like the rest of the world says, to be strong in ourselves. We want to be strong in the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Before He ascended up into heaven, He told His disciples, All power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. That included power over the devil and his angels. That included power over Michael the archangel and his angels. That includes all power. And that power is available to us if we will walk in his ways, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, doing everything in his name, walking in the Spirit, not grieving or quenching that Spirit, 
and obeying the commandments of God. That power is available. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. You can claim the power of God in living a victorious Christian life by submitting to God and resisting the devil. The Bible tells us in James 4, 7, if you will resist the devil, he will flee from you. He does not like born again children of God standing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and resisting him. They're too potent of a foe because the Lord is with them. He'll, he'll flee. I'm not preaching like Benny Hinn about you getting rid of the common cold. I'm preaching like the Apostle Paul in telling you to live a victorious life over sin while we are left here in this world by the God who saved us. There is an enemy that wants to discredit the God of heaven and he wants to undermine the success of the Lord Jesus Christ because he cannot stand this simple fact. The highest created being in the universe was defeated by a man. The Lord Jesus Christ. Is that glorious? Jesus Christ made an open show of the devil on the cross. Colossians 2.15 We can stand in that power. But you need to resist the devil. You need to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible tells us to do that. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the glory of God our Father. Everything you do ought to be done in the matchless name and the victorious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. We need to beg the Holy Spirit to grant us the strength and put a hedge about us and to protect us like the Lord God protected Job. Satan knew why Job was so righteous. Satan said to the Lord, you put a, you've put a hedge about him. Let me touch him and he'll curse you to your face. The Lord can put up a hedge and we want to pray for that hedge. What do you think the Lord meant when He said that we ought to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You can walk in the Spirit and have the power of the Spirit of God in your life bearing fruits like these. Love, joy, peace. There's no love in the devil's realm. There's no peace in the devil's realm. And there's no joy in the devil's realm. They know where they're going. They know what's coming. They have a word for it. It starts with T. Their future starts with T. What is that word that they repeatedly told the Lord Jesus Christ when He was on earth? Torment. We have love, joy, and peace. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You walk in the Spirit and you have the power of the Lord. You go forward by faith. You know, there's two ways you can approach the Red Sea. You can stand and start to complain that God has delivered you by ten plagues out of the land of Egypt so that He can kill you out in the desert. Is that pitiful? Oh, no, don't, don't get too nasty about those Israelites because if the truth be told, they look pretty good some days compared to you and me. There's another way to approach the Red Sea, and that's to step in. Do you trust Him enough to do that? When you step out by faith, The Lord God will bless you because you are walking in His strength and you're doing it by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk, step your foot into the edge of the Red Sea and it will divide. Peter jumped over the gunwale of his ship, landed on the water, couldn't believe it. He was excited to show the other disciples how bold he was. 
And so he walked on water. But he soon took his eyes off the Lord and put them on the winds and the waves. And he began to sink. And the fault was he was of little faith. Jesus said to him and rebuked him for it. Oh, thou of little faith. You were walking. Why would you start fearing? So you step out by faith in the power of his might. That verse is wonderful there. Ephesians 6.10 Brethren, we are soldiers. It's a spiritual battle. And I always fear using the word soldier because men start to think that it's a physical battle. But it's not. It's a spiritual battle. But the Bible does describe it as a war. So we'll use the word soldier. Now we have a great king. And he's a victorious king. And he's riding a white horse in the picture that he wants us to get from Revelation chapter 19. And on that white horse, he has a sharp sword going out of his mouth. His name on his thigh is the Word of God. And he's dripping with the blood of his enemies. And he's trampling the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Now for us to line up behind him, we are to do so by putting on the armor he's about to tell us. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That victorious Savior that is in a picture before us from Revelation, that is the Savior we worship. He is not hanging on a crucifix where the Catholics want to keep Him. He is not in a baby's manger where the Catholics want to keep Him. He is risen and victorious and reigning over all in heaven. We can be strong in His might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Let's not leave off any pieces. You just sang in that song, let there not be any of it wanting. That means in the day of evil, you want to have all the pieces of armor on. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It's not God standing, it's you standing. But you're standing in the power of His might and with the armor that He specifies. You can stand. You can withstand the devil. Because Jesus Christ has already defeated His works and given you the power and the grace to put on the pieces of armor that will shield you from Him. We're going to get to them in just a moment. And by the grace of God, I'm going to make it plain enough. Ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now the word wiles, you know, means crafty cunning. He's sneaking around. But you can put on the armor so that even if he sneaks around, he can't hit you a a fatal blow because you're covered with the armor God's going to give you. And you can stand. You don't have to fall in battle. You can stand and be victorious in living a successful, functional, Jesus Christ-praising, victorious, fruit-bearing life. And that's what we're called to do. God has saved us and made us His children. Let's be children that make our Father happy. Let's be children that bless our Father. And that rejoice the heart of the God that has loved us and saved us with an everlasting salvation. We have covered much of this last Sunday by the way of introduction, so I'm going to speedily, speedy, be speedy through these verses so that we can get to verses that we didn't cover last Lord's Day. But when we look at verse 11... Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. I need to correct a misconception. That misconception is that if the devil really attacks us and we fall, we will be sick. We will be insane in an insane asylum. Or we'll be dead. 
Remember, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, it says, The devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. When the devil devours someone, it is not that they are sick or that they are in an insane asylum. There are some there because of the devil, no doubt. Or that they're dead. That's not devouring you. Devouring you is getting you to live a worldly Christian life. When you live a carnal Christian existence, you have been devoured. The devil has won. He's grinning about your life. He doesn't care if you go to church. He doesn't care that you have got the foam rubber in your pews up to 98 degrees. He doesn't care. In fact, he's excited. Because if you're in, if you're in this church, then you just may well pull the rest of us down with you. You have been devoured if you are a carnal Christian. If you're a doubting Christian, if you're a weak Christian, if you're worldly minded, he's, he's already got you. That is to devour you. What did he want to get Job to do? See, we think about when Satan strikes, the Chaldeans come. Like in Job chapter 1. The Saracens come. Whoever comes. But that is only to get Job someplace. What did Satan want Job to do to be victorious? He wanted Job to curse God to his face. He wanted Job to get upset when his wife came to him and said, Are you still retaining your integrity after all God's done to you? You might as well curse God and die. He doesn't care about you. If he would have said yes to her, that is when Satan would have devoured him. The issue was not losing his assets. I'll tell you something. Do you know what? When we lose our assets, we usually get closer to the Lord because it drives us to our knees. It's when we're fat and happy that we forget about Him and start thinking about the things of this world. There is advantage in poverty. That's why the wise man in Proverbs chapter 30 said, Lord, give me food convenient for me. Don't make me rich because I could forget you that way. And don't make me too poor that I steal and take your name in vain. Just give me enough to be comfortable. Don't look at the assets that disappeared from Job. Look at what Satan's goal was to get that righteous man that feared God to curse God. What did he do with Peter? When Satan desired to have Peter, and we had that read to us this morning by our young brother, did he want Peter to what? Deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Deny that he knew him. That is what the devil wanted. Peter didn't get sick. Peter didn't get taken to an insane asylum. And Peter didn't die. Peter didn't even lose any assets. He just denied the Lord Jesus Christ. And how often do we deny the Lord Jesus Christ and the devil wins in our lives? Those are his wiles. I want you to understand what it means when he says to devour you. It means to, it means to make you preoccupied with this life instead of heaven. It means to make you doubting your salvation. It means to... It means for you to be doubting whether God has forgiven you the confession of your sins. He is grinning about you because you've been devoured. You have not stood up in the power of His might and put His armor on. Verse 12 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against four things. And they're all the same thing. Principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. All four are the same thing. These are devilish spirits. The first part of the verse tells us that we should interpret all four that way because it says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't need to fear the United Nations. We don't need to fear Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. We don't need to fear the Illuminati, the CFR, or anyone else. 
They've never done anything against the cause of Christ that's amounted to a hill of beans. The enemy that we need to fear is the devil himself. You don't need to fear sex education in the schools, the NEA, PETA, or the PTA. They're all our enemies, but they're not the enemies that Paul's warning about here. This man, Paul, when he wrote these words, was in prison because of the Jews and the Romans combining against him. They had beaten him many times. They had whipped him. They had stoned him. He had been in the peril of his life in the sea. He had been in peril of robbers. Now, that's all flesh and blood. But do you know what he said when he wrote this? He said, this prison ain't so bad. It's the spiritual conflict with the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. As soon as you find a church that is wrestling against something that has flesh and blood, Satan has succeeded in that church in diverting their attention from the real enemy to a fake one. Every one of you in here should read the fable of Don Quixote. The adventures of Don Quixote. Don Quixote thought himself a knight and he he began jousting with the windmill that he misidentified. And that's what the devil does to us. We get so occupied fighting for the Ten Commandments in the State House of the State of Alabama. Now, what good do they do there if nobody's keeping them in the State of Alabama? What are we fighting for a piece of stone for? I'll tell you why. Because it's a whole lot easier to fight that battle than the one that says, don't lust after your neighbor's wife. It's easy to fight that battle. That isn't what God's called us to fight. And as soon as you see someone fighting that battle, the devil's won to a degree in their lives by not focusing on where they ought to be. You know, we could carry placards around in front of abortion clinics, but where's God called us to do that? Paul never did it. Paul should have been carrying placards around in front of Christian killing clinics. But he didn't do it. He just preached the gospel and lived a holy life. And that's what we ought to do. So our enemy is in verse 12, and it is devils. People don't know anything about the devils because they haven't read the Bible. They're called principalities because they are the realm of a prince. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. He has his minions in this room. We are not afraid of them, though they could torch us if they were allowed to. Because there are angels in here protecting us as well, and we are assembling in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which causes their spiritual knees to knock when they hear the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth by those that believe in Him. Seven sons of Sceva thought they could use that name, and no knees knocked except theirs as they stood outside shivering in the cold because they had no clothes. If you've ever read Acts 19, you know about the seven sons of Sceva. The devil said to them, We know Paul, and we know Jesus, but who in the world are you gypsies? And one man stripped seven of them naked, and he had, they had to run out of that house. Now that's the power they have, and they're in here. But I'll tell you something, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, they can't touch you. You know what the Bible says? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You know what the Bible says? We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Because Jesus Christ has conquered them all. Principalities and powers. They have authority. They're rulers with authority in the angelic realm. They are the rulers of the darkness of this world. When you see darkness in this world, religious darkness, cultural darkness, whatever kind of darkness, educational darkness, television darkness, all that darkness is under the control of the rulers of the darkness of this world. It's devils. 
Hollywood is not Steven Spielberg's property. Hollywood is the devil's property. He is the ruler over what goes on in Hollywood. They're the rulers of the darkness of this world, and they're not flesh and blood. They're spirit beings. When you look at some of the fashion trends that come out of New York City, and you say, how in the world could anyone ever think that anybody would wear something like that? The rulers of the darkness of this world. When you listen to some of the music coming over some radio stations today, and you say, how could anybody listen to that noise? The rulers of the darkness of this world. Men did not figure that out. Men could not take a nation down so fast as this nation has gone down as it gave place to the devil. And spiritual wickedness in high places. Those high places are not the United Nations. They're not the European common market. And they're not Washington, D.C. It's the high places of where angels operate in the atmosphere of this earth and in their hierarchical structure and the organization chart of the devils. They are all organized. There are greater and weaker devils. And the Bible tells us about them. I showed you just a few weeks ago when preaching on angels from Daniel chapter 9 and 10 that there was a prince of Persia and there was a prince of Grecia and he didn't have flesh and blood. He was a spirit that motivated Alexander the Great. There was a reason Alexander the Great conquered the known world by the age of 30 with a vastly inferior army because the devil was with him. And the Lord told us that. And remember that one angel said I needed Michael to come and help me because I couldn't oppose him. That's what it means in verse 12. Those are the spiritual wickedness in high places or devils. Verse 13, wherefore, because we've got this huge army against us that wants to destroy our Christian lives, wherefore, because of that, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Verses 11 and 13 are very much alike. Get the whole armor on. Don't leave any off. You've got the ability in the might of Jesus Christ to defeat the devil and he'll flee from you. So we come to verse 14. Now let me help you here. This is where it's, I'm, I'm called to try to make it plain. We're about to go into five pieces of armor, one weapon, and the activity of Jesus Christ, the, mem- the citizens of his kingdom, the soldiers in his army. Five pieces of armor, one weapon, one activity. And with those seven things, you can defeat the devil and have a God-honoring life, and the Holy Spirit of God will walk with you, and you will know that you are his son, that he is your father, and he will abide with you and dwell with you, and you will know it, and you will have his power in your life. You will be the happiest person you could ever be. You will never even come close to it any other way. You will be filled with the most love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, if you put on all these pieces of armor and resist the devil. There are several problems. There are three at understanding this passage. Number one, they worry about the pieces of armor. You know I like armor. You know I like knights. I could have brought knights. I could have brought big knights or little knights. I could have brought shields, swords, or whatever. Tempted to do so, but I didn't. Because that's what most of the commentators that I read, just to see what they do with the passage, spend all their time on telling about Greek and Roman armor. I'm not going to waste one sentence telling you about Greek or Roman armor because that is not the lesson of the passage. In my, These men will all stand before God, but in my judgment, 
the devil has won part of the victory, even in the passage about Christian armor, by men writing paragraph after paragraph and page after page about Greek or Roman armor. Who cares? Why do I need to explain to you what a breastplate is? Do you think you can figure out where it goes? Do you think that it's a plate? So it's not a circle. It's not a breastplate ring. It's not a breast ring. It's a breastplate. I'm not even going to go into the armor. That's the first error that's made. Wasting time talking about pieces of armor. Two, I'm not going to waste time talking about the parts of your body that it covers. Why should I try to explain what your chest has to do with living a spiritually victorious life? That's getting off the point. That's a metaphor. Do you know what metaphors are? They're word pictures to give you an idea of what he's talking about. And all he's doing is talking about a soldier standing in his room getting on his armor. He's putting on his boots. He's putting on his helmet. He's getting his breastplate on. He's girding up his loins with truth. He's got a sword. That's what it, it's just a metaphor. We don't waste our time on the metaphor. We want the lesson. That's the second problem that men do. They talk about the body parts. Why do I need to talk about your feet? I don't want your feet just shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I want your whole lives covered with the gospel of peace. Let me show you that what I'm doing, the Lord told me to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It was read to you earlier, but I want to show it to you this morning. What I just did was to say that the pieces of armor are not important and the body parts that are covered by those pieces of armor are not important. Do you know what you need to remember from Ephesians chapter 6? Truth. Righteousness. Peace. Faith. Hope. Scripture. Praying. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, and for an helmet... Salvation. I altered the verse. If you're all looking at a King James Bible, and you ought to be, I altered the verse because in Ephesians 6, it's the breastplate of righteousness. What's the breastplate here? Faith. No, it can't be. It can't be. In Ephesians 6, it says that faith is a shield. How can it be a shield and a breastplate? You know what that verse tells me with the power of the Holy Ghost and His inspiration and His kindness to me as a little preacher in His kingdom? The pieces of armor don't matter because that's a metaphor and that is not the lesson. And the body parts that are covered are not the lesson. The lesson is faith, love, righteousness, peace, and all those other aspects of the kingdom of God. Are you with me on that? This is how we study the Bible. I am not going to waste your time by spending most of my minutes talking about Greek or Roman armor or the body parts they cover. We are going to talk about truth. We're going to talk about righteousness, peace, faith, the Word of God, and hope. These are the things we need in our lives because it is those things that oppose the devil. Your knowledge of Greek and Roman armor and the body parts covered aren't going to send you out of here with one thing to fight the devil. You know what? If you'll compare Scripture with Scripture, and you don't need need to be a pastor to be able to compare Scripture with Scripture, you can know what the Holy Spirit means if you'll read the Bible. You know, by finding 1 Thessalonians 5.8, it's not the only passage. But it tells me right there that the breastplate doesn't have to be righteousness. It can also be faith and love, which tells me that a shield doesn't have to be faith. It can also be something else. And it tells me that the helmet of salvation is not really the helmet of salvation. It's hope. Did you see that as well? Okay. 
I love the Word of God. It'll never let you down if you'll trust it and read it. But you, how much of it do you have to read? Every word of God. Is that what Jesus Christ answered? The devil man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You've got to read every word. Now, if you're reading a new King James Bible, a new American Standard Version, or if you are so lucky to have purchased that five-year-old Bible that everybody's all excited about the English Standard Version, you aren't going to have all the words of God. And you will never be able to understand it like a person who humbles himself before the King James Bible. We don't have any vested interest in the King James Bible. No one does. It doesn't have a copyright like the other ones I just listed. All we want you to have is every word of God. Ephesians 6. Let's jump into the armor. Oh, before we do, I need to go to number three. I got lost myself. If I'm lost, where are you? We don't worry about the pieces of armor. We don't worry about the body parts covered. Then we have to answer this question. As we go into the pieces of armor, is the Apostle Paul describing our legal standing in Jesus Christ that we're to put on? Or is he giving us a practical exhortation of godliness that we're to put on? We choose that latter one. Because that's what all four, five, and six of Ephesians are about. Let me tell you another secret. Our legal standing in Jesus Christ, the devil already knows. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. You don't need to put it on. It's on. Do you know when, he went, when, was the, when was Satan cast out of heaven according to John 12 and Revelation 12? He was cast out of heaven when Jesus Christ got there because heaven itself is not big enough for both of them. He was cast out of heaven into the earth. The accuser of the brethren cast down in Revelation 12:11, which occurred at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ because there was nothing left to lay to the charge of God's elect. Amen. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justified It is Christ that died. Romans chapter 8. The devil didn't have anything else to say in heaven because legally and positionally we are taken care of, signed, sealed, and delivered for eternal glory forever. Nothing is going to interrupt that. Neither principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come can ever separate us from the love of God. Okay. Our legal salvation is absolutely secure but we have a practical salvation that we are to live out and oppose that devil so that he does not ruin all the Christians on earth so that they are disgraced to their Father in heaven and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's given us the armor and he's telling us to put it on. And here we go. We put on truth. First of all, we put on truth. The devil's a liar. And if you give him any room in your life with not being the most scrupulously honest person that you possibly can be, the devil will take advantage of you, ruin your Christian profession and take you down. How honest are you? How honest are you on the job? When you punch in, do you work all the way until when you punch out? Do you punch in on time or a little bit before? Do you get there on time? Do you use the company phone for your own use? Are you honest? When somebody asks you something, do you always tell them the truth? Do you represent yourself honestly in this assembly by not being a hypocrite? Do you always tell the truth on your tax return when you sign that statement that says, I promise, whatever we promise, it's it's terrible. It's, cor- it's correct, complete, and true to the best of your knowledge. Do you do that? In all of your dealings, are you scrupulously honest? Do you have perfect integrity? If you don't, the devil will get a toehold in your life. He's a liar. He can't deal with somebody that deals in truth. He can't stand it. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only reason he got a hold of Eve is because she allowed a, a lie to come in. If she would have said, 
get out of here. The Lord said that we would die in the day that we eat thereof. That's the truth. You're telling a lie. If Adam had jumped in there and been a faithful husband and told his wife she was wrong and said, I'm not going to touch that piece of fruit, he's lied to you. It all came about because of lies. The whole world is full of lies. The devil's been a liar from the beginning and he's lied ever since. Every religious denomination in the world, and we wonder, you know, if we, if we ask the Lord if there's a lie left in our worship of God, we want Him to show it to us so that we can get rid of it and follow the truth perfectly. Amen. You know, there's a billion Catholics today, or at least the hundred million that go to church, that's one out of ten. One out, one out of ten is going to go to church today and they're going to be handed a little cracker God. And the lie is, this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. You're eating God right now. Enjoy. And it dissolves on your tongue, and it goes out in the draft, as the Bible says it. And see, I'm very modest and appropriate in my language. The Bible says, whatever goes in your mouth goes out in the draft. Look it up later. It's, a, it's D-R-A-U-G-H-T. But that's where the Catholic God ends up. Because it's a lie. The Mormons think that they've got the twelve apostles sitting in Salt Lake City. The Mormons think that the United States government's a little oppressive to their religious practices because otherwise they'd all have a whole bunch of wives so that they could populate the planets that God's going to give them later when they're gods. And on and on we could go with lies. That's doctrinal lying. You know what? The real emphasis here isn't doctrinal lying. It's your lying. It's practical lying. It all goes together because truth is truth is truth. And lies are lies are lies. And do you know what kind of a heart you have? The heart is deceitful above all things. You have a heart that loves to lie to you. And you love to believe your heart. Your Your heart tells you your parents are dumb. And you're smart. When just last year, they were having to wrap you in cotton to keep you from dirtying on yourself. Dad says that girl isn't good enough for you. And he doesn't mean her social standing. He means her spiritual heart. Your your deceitful heart lies to you and said, Dad, don't know anything about love. Everybody thinks that. lies to you so we love truth and we start thinking about truth in every part of our lives that we possibly can if you are always seeking the truth i will not worship in a church that even has one lie in it i will point the lie out to the pastor and i will leave that church if they continue in it because we have to follow the truth because if you stay around a lie the devil's going to take you down because you've given him a place in your life you're going to be speaking the truth you're going to always tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth So help us God. Do we have to go to court to say that statement? Or can we say it right now in our hearts? I'm going to seek the truth, speak the truth, and do the truth. And if you do that, you're safe. Acts chapter 5. Look at it with me for just a minute. Acts chapter 5. I want to give you an example. I want to show you the practical lesson that we're to get from these pieces of armor and the weapon and the activity of a soldier of Jesus Christ. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property. They were members of the church of Jerusalem. They had witnessed a man named Joseph who was surnamed Barnabas, also known as Barnabas, who had given a piece of property to the church and all the proceeds of it. He had sold it, give the money, put it down at the apostles' feet. 
Barnabas had his name written in Acts chapter 4. Obviously, there would have been a big deal made about him. He didn't do it to be seen of men. He did it to help the poor saints at Jerusalem. Ananias and Sapphira saw that. They went home. They had a little real estate portfolio of their own. They sold one of their pieces of property and they said, well, listen, we need, we can keep a little bit of that if we, if we just take a little bit of commission, you know. You know, we'll give the rest to the Lord. And so Ananias walked in first and laid it down at the apostles' feet and, and, uh, Peter, I wonder how he knew this. Peter said, is this what you sold it for? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Aren't you proud of me? And listen to these words. You can, you can look at it right now. Acts chapter 5. Why hath Satan... He says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Why hath Satan filled thine heart? Now, if Peter really wanted to know why Satan had filled Ananias' heart, why didn't Peter ask Satan? Are you with me? Do you read the Word of God that carefully? This is how we ought to read it. Why is Peter asking Ananias why Satan hath filled his heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Who gave Satan the room into that lie, into his heart, in order for them to come up with that lie? Ananias and Sapphira were not truth dealers. Satan couldn't get in to do a thing like that unless you would even think about it. If you would never even think about misrepresenting something like that, Satan can't get a hold in your life. I want you to notice that language. Remember, we're fighting against Satan. We're fighting against principalities and powers in the darkness of this earth. And this is an example of it when it comes to truth. These people lied to Peter and the apostles and the church at Jerusalem about the gift they had given. Peter said they had lied against the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost indwells the temple, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did it all get started? The two of them sat at home and thought about misrepresenting their gift. Do you ever sit at home and think or talk about ever misrepresenting anything? God help us. Lord, forgive us. Let's be lovers of truth in every aspect of our lives. The Bible says, let, uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, Romans 12, 17, it says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. That's what we're to do. Provide things honest. You know, sometimes you're being honest. Hear me. Sometimes you're being honest, but the rest of the world, when they look at it, it looks like you might be being dishonest. So you've got to go out of your way, even though you're already honest, to provide things honest in the sight of all men. You're to abstain from all appearance of evil by even taking care of the thoughts. You know what, wife? If we do it that way, somebody could think this. So let's not do it that way, even though it's going to take extra effort, because we need to provide things honest in the sight of all men. That is what the Bible teaches, and that's what those words mean. Go out of your way to make sure everyone looking at the situation will see your honesty, even if you would have been honest otherwise. Go out of your way to prove it to them. That's putting on truth. That's girding up your loins with truth. The devil that can't stand a person that deals in truth, because he's a liar. His whole business is based on lying. If you're always telling the truth, he doesn't have a foothold or even a toehold in your life. Brethren, today, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us we are in the perilous times of the last days. Men will be traitors, liars. Men will be covenant breakers, liars. Practically, 
That's in first, second Timothy 3.1. Then in second Timothy 4, it says that men will no longer endure the sound, sound doctrine and will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned unto fables. So practically and doctrinally, the Christian world is tanking when it comes to truth. So let's start in here and be a church that seeks, loves, praises, and defends the truth. And in our families, let's love and defend and seek and promote the truth. If your children lie to you, do you need help on what you ought to do to them? That's the worst thing they can ever do. That's most like the devil, is to lie. Crush it. Annihilate it. Teach your children the importance of truth. We've got to go. We've got to seriously go. Ephesians chapter 6, the second half of, the, of verse 14, is going to be righteousness. Ephesians 6 and verse 14, Stand therefore. Here's how we stand. We have our loins girt about with truth. We don't worry about the girdle, and we don't worry about the loins. We worry about the truth. Let's walk away with seven things that we can take home and live a victorious Christian life with. Number one is truth. Number two is righteousness because we put on the breastplate of righteousness in the second half of that verse. Now, God has already made us perfectly righteous. Every one of God's elect from before the foundation of the world has already been seen by covenant standing in Jesus Christ as perfectly righteous. In the sight of God, legally considered, I have been without sin, spotless, holy, and blameless, and so have you, in the Lord Jesus Christ from before the world began. But that's, and that's the basis of all righteousness, what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. But we are to put on the breastplate of practical righteousness. Now I gave you an example of that last Lord's Day, but I want you to see it this Lord's Day. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it has to do with sex, but I hope that no one's going to get squeamish because if it's in the Word of God and you get squeamish, then you've got a problem. No one should be squeamish, but we should all read this text and understand it is such a glorious illustration of putting on the breastplate of righteousness. I am saying that the righteousness in 1 Corinthians 7, 5 is practical righteousness. It's not putting on my legal standing because God has already done that. Now, it, you say, well, well isn't, there, isn't there value in putting on your legal standing of righteousness? Yeah, when it gets down to faith and when it gets down to the Word of God, I'll include that there. But right here, it's more practical righteousness. Look at how practical the righteousness is that you're to put on. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. That's how you avoid fornication. You get married. In verse 9, it'll put it this way. It's better to marry than to burn. If you're burning, find yourself a God-fearing, Christ-loving, truth-seeking, obedient, godly, gracious woman and get married. That's how you solve burning. To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Verse 3, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. That's what she wants, when she wants it, where she wants it, and how she wants it. That's what due benevolence is. And likewise, also the wife unto the husband. She's to give him due benevolence, where he wants it, when he wants it, how he wants it, when he wants it. Verse 4, the wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise, also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. 
once you get married, you have the rights and privileges to your spouse's body whenever you want them, however you want them, wherever you want them. And it goes both ways. It's a two-way street. This is the Word of God. This is how we avoid fornication as Christians. Verse 5, defraud ye not one the other. That means not to give them due benevolence, as I just described. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. The, Paul says there is an exception for due benevolence whenever. It's when the two of you sit down and say, husband, and the wife says, yes, sir, let's fast for two days and not eat. And let's give ourselves to prayer for 48 hours. And we're not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna make love. We're not gonna have sex. The Lord understands all that. And Paul, Paul writes about it right here. Don't you dare defraud each other unless it's for this purpose and it's agreed upon and it's for a limited time. And then it says, and come together again. Get 49th hour. Guess where you're supposed to be or at least thinking about it. And I'm not trying to be funny. I'm trying to deal with the Word of God the way it says right here. And come together again. And it doesn't mean come together at lunch. It means to get into bed. That, Satan, tempt you not for your incontinency. And that word incontinency is your inability to contain or restrain yourself from fornication because you've gone without the normal outlet that saves you from fornication. Are you all with me? It's very plain, very practical, not taught very often. But Ephesians chapter 6, when it says to put on the breastplate of righteousness, here's an example. Because Paul is saying, if you do not use God's natural means to keep yourself from fornication, then maybe you won't have a problem because you are an undersexed spouse. But your spouse might have a problem because they're oversexed or normal sexed and you're defrauding them and you will create a temptation in their life to where they want to commit fornication. Satan will be looking around. Look look at that. Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. Now, there's only one way that Satan can know how often you're having sex. His devils are in your bedroom. How else would they know? How else would he know? He is the prince of the power of the air. You can close the door and keep the kids out, but you can't close the door and keep the spirits out. And I'm not some voodoo doctor. I am preaching you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to put on the breastplate of righteousness, you better put it on where nobody else even knows what we're talking about. But the devil knows. And that's what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Could I, could I say more on that subject? I could say a whole lot more on that subject. But look at that example that we have from the Bible. Back to Ephesians chapter 6. Are you obeying God in every part of your life? What is righteousness? Righteousness is doing what is right as defined by God. Now, the world has their own definition of right and wrong, and we don't care one whit about it when it comes to this comparison. What does God say is right and wrong? That's what we're supposed to be doing. And when you're not doing it, the devil knows what God said is right and wrong. He can quote Scripture right well. Did you listen to our young brother this morning when he was reading from Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11? The devil can quote Scripture. He knows what the Bible says. He's got a better memory than you do. He can remember the whole thing. And when you're not obeying it in some part of your life, he's got a toehold into your life. He's got an open door. He can launch his fiery darts or his missiles or his sword or his spear at that part of your body. And so we put on the breastplate of righteousness by always doing what is right, right down to the private intimate acts that occur in a bedroom. And that's what God raised as an example of where Satan can get a, 
an opening in our lives. Are you living righteously on the job? Are you living righteously everywhere with your neighbor? Everywhere. Are you righteous? Doing things God's way. Do you understand that if we did these things and did them in a prayerful attitude, the devil couldn't get a hold of us? Peace. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You put on your military boots, but we don't even care about that. We care about the word peace. It's a gospel of peace because the king I represent is called in the Bible the prince of peace. He has made peace between sinners and God. He has reconciled us to God by the death, by His death on the cross. He preaches peace through the gospel. God is at peace with sinners through Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. But the practical piece of armor we're to put on is we're to live at peace with one another. It's the gospel of peace because everything about the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of peace. And that does not mean we're pacifists. You know, if our nation were to call our young men, and we thank God they have not, it has not called our young men yet, but if it were to call our young men, they would go to war and they would be the best soldiers that our army has. That wouldn't take a whole lot, but they would be the best that they could be. I'm speaking of the present army. It's not what it used to be. However, we're to live at peace, we're to live in peace with all men. That's what the Bible teaches us, and especially in the house of God. I want to tell you something about the devil. The devil loves conflict. The devil believes in divide and conquer. He won't let his army or his kingdom be divided. Remember what Jesus Christ said about the kingdom of the devil? The Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out devils by the power of the devil. Jesus said, if Satan's kingdom be divided, how could he possibly stand? You know what I'm trying to tell you about the devilish kingdom it is very organized very efficient they all understand the roles and places and positions of authority that god gave them and they do not fight one another but they know that if they can get into a church and sow discord what does god say that he thinks about a man that sows discord among brethren he hates that man proverbs chapter 6 verses 16 through 19 and the man that soweth discord among brethren Because that is dividing and conquering, and that is letting Satan have access into your life. I was a rebellious teenager. And my parents are here. And they know about this event in my life. Turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. My father had to take me to some other Baptist ministers because he didn't know what to do with me. My father was a righteous young man. He didn't know how to deal with an unrighteous one. My father's a gentle man. He didn't know how to deal with a wild one. In all the years since that time, I've told him how he should have dealt with me. And it was in his two-by-four. It, it was in his wood out in the garage. He should have taken a two-by-four and busted it over me. Then he wouldn't have needed those other Baptist pastors. But anyway... To make a long story short without telling you all the gory details right now. I remember some Baptist pastors sitting down with me when I was about 17 years old and taking me to this passage, asking me a few pertinent questions. And here it is. Verse 14. 
if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. I thought I was a pretty tough young teenager. I had a Kawasaki 500, the fastest production motorcycle made in the world at that time. That tells you I'm very old. I had a 1970 GTO, 455 cubic inches, 433 rear end, four speed, live hood vents. Oh, I, I had it made in the shade, I thought. And they, they confronted me with this verse, If ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, because I was wanting to fight everybody, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. Oh. Do you know what you're like in the way that you're treating your father? You're a devil. I didn't like being called a devil. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. You are a messed up young man. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And by the grace of God, they sent me home that night to be with my parents and to make peace. All of that passage is for this purpose. Peace is a sign of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The devil is one who likes fighting and division and differences and strife and envy and malice. And so we had better be peacemakers. I read in the word of God, Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God is peace. Don't you dare let any differences come up between you and any other member in here. Don't you let there be differences in your marriage. Don't you let differences exist between the parents and the children. Don't you children have any differences with other children in here. We all have to get along with each other because the Lord wants us to. Because if we don't get along with each other, the devil can see the animosity, the enmity, the strife, the envy. And he will use that to take our church down or take your family down or take you down. Love peace. Seek peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. We want to be peacemakers. Look at this passage. It says, don't lie against the truth. Don't lie about this matter and don't glory in the fact that you're some tough guy because you're, you're going to stand your ground. I'm not going to let them treat me like that. That is the voice of the devil. That has never been the voice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was abused his whole life. And he laid down his life for us. We are brethren. We put up with each other. We let others walk over us. Didn't it, doesn't it say in 1 Corinthians 6, it is better to suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Right. Suffer yourselves to be defrauded. That means something's wrong done to you. Let it be done. But let's keep the peace. Because the devil wants to destroy your peace. I am telling you how to put on the armor. If I were to preach to you about the peace that God has in Jesus Christ for all of us, that wouldn't give you anything to take out of here. I'm telling you to live at peace in your home, your marriage, in this church, on the job, and with all men. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And that's what the Bible says. How about the shield of faith? Back to Ephesians chapter 6. Mom and Dad, I'm sorry for every bit of rebellion, strife, envy, malice, wickedness that, that I ever had back then. 
I try to beg their forgiveness once a month or once every two weeks whenever I talk to them. He always tells me the same thing. It's a long time ago. We forgave you a long time ago, but now that I have my own children, oh, it hurts a lot more than it did back then. It hurts a lot more. I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me. I'm thankful for the Word of God. Above all, verse 16, should we believe every word of God? Above all, i got something more important than truth, righteousness, and peace to tell you about. Above all, take the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. How many darts of the wicked? All of them. What's a fiery dart of the wicked? It's a thought that you have in your mind that is contrary to the Word of God, and so you hold up the shield of faith. That's what the fiery dart is. Do you know how many pages I had to read about the fiery darts that were used? The fiery darts that were used against wooden engines so that the Roman engines would be burned up because they threw a fiery dart pages and pages. Then I had to read about poisonous darts. I don't care about either kind. A fiery dart is the devil launching a thought into your mind. The devil can no longer come before God and accuse you to him because Jesus Christ has paid your debt, but he can come to you and accuse you. And guess what? You'd rather believe him than the Lord. And that's the problem we all have. So we need to take up the shield of faith. We need to take up the shield of faith. Now, can I give you a couple of examples? I love Joseph. All you men, you know what I mean by this. Mrs. Potiphar smelled good. Whoa. How old was Joseph when he went down to Egypt? 17. How old was he when he finally made it to the throne? 30. So he spent 13 years. Are those kind of, you know... I think I've told all you young men, testosterone hits its highest level at 19. Did Joseph have a pretty rough life? Did she feel pretty soft? Did she smell good? Was she warm? Was he all alone in Egypt? Was his family far away? Was she willing? How can I commit this great sin against God? He remembered the Scriptures. He couldn't do that. Daniel... Ashpenaz comes by and hands him fillet of pig that had been offered to Bel, the god of the Babylonians. Fillet of pig and wine, both of which had been dedicated to the god of the Babylonians. And Daniel had purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat or the king's wine, and he refused it because the word of God told him not to touch it. And he wasn't going to honor that pagan deity. David... At one time, the circumstances were so terrible against him. If you remember, on his way to Ziklag, his wives, his children, and everything had been captured and hauled away. And his own men wanted to stone him to death. 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6. How did David handle such a situation where his own men wanted to stone him? He encouraged himself in the Lord. He took up the shield of faith. They were saying things. He was doubting himself. He was wondering why has God reduced me to such circumstances. But he took up the shield of faith. He said in Psalm 27 and verse 13, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have fainted except I believed that God would show me his goodness in the future. What gives you the ability to do that? The shield of faith. God keeps His promises. 
And God will reward those that diligently seek Him. And David was diligently seeking God. And though there might be some difficult circumstances, in the short run, there was going to be blessing in the long run. Job had everything disappear. And Job said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave. The Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What gives you the ability to do that? Faith. The shield of faith. Pick up faith. Believe what God has said. Believe that God is. Believe that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. I want to tell you about fairy darts. When you ever confess your sins and you get up from confessing your sins and you have the thought, God didn't really forgive me. I didn't pray earnest enough. I didn't pray long enough. God didn't hear that. God didn't forgive. Where do you think that's coming from? Do you think that's coming from the Holy Spirit of God? Do you think that's coming from Michael the Archangel, Gabriel the Messenger of God? That's coming from the devil himself. That's a fiery dart against you. Do you know what you ought to do? Take up the shield of faith. Do you know what it says? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is how you take up the shield of faith and quench the fiery darts of the wicked. Job had so much faith, he said, though he slay me. Yet will I trust in Him. Wow! That's Job 13, 15. Do you believe that? Though He slay me, if God kills me, when I am reduced to the spirit realm and my body is dead, I will still trust Him. Even though God had forsaken the Lord Jesus Christ, He had so much faith in the cross. He said, Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. That is faith. Peter took his eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ, put them on the waves, he began to sink. Why? Because he was weak in faith. Be strong in faith, brethren. This is what it means to put on the whole armor of God. When it comes to the shield of faith, believe what God has said. Don't doubt your ability. Don't doubt your ability to defeat, to defeat a temptation in your life. God has made you able. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. If you doubt yourself, you are giving the devil room in your life. Don't walk around saying how worthless you are. That is the devil talking. Only the devil, always the devil, never the Spirit of God. And as soon as you let that thought enter your mind and you entertain it for a while, the devil has a grin because he has just reduced your effectiveness as a father, as a husband, as a church member, as everything because you are entertaining lying thoughts. We are, we can do anything we choose to through Jesus Christ our Lord. Take the shield of faith. It says the helmet of salvation in verse 17. The helmet of salvation is the hope of salvation because we saw that in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. So when it says the helmet and it says salvation, the Christian grace that we're to put on to defeat the devil is hope. Most of this world lives in hopelessness. We can have hope because we have an eternal reward coming. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says that the light affliction that is only for a moment now, is not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that's coming. See, they don't... I'll tell you why hope defeats the devil. Because he is entirely hopeless. He knows that. He told the Lord, Art thou come to torment us before the time? They know that torment's coming. They just don't know when. They're hopeless. Have you ever watched... I know some of you have. And we all have at times in the past. God, forgive us. Every Hollywood movie is hopeless. If you will just measure Hollywood 
by the hope they give, they are hopeless. There is never hope because there is none in Hollywood. That is why they are drunkards, dope addicts, divorcees, and all twisted and messed up because they don't have hope. You know, I have a little daughter now that's working in a medical office. I can't use any names, but I can say this, that she can't believe how many antidepressants she has to dispense every day. And a lot of Christians on antidepressants. But you know what? There's a cure for that, and it's the helmet of salvation. It's the hope that God gives us. He's got a lot in store for us. It's It's guaranteed. He's predestinated us to it. We're just waiting for the ride home. And it's going to be quick. It's going to be in the chariots of God. That's what it means in verse 17. And that's to look at heaven and all that God has done for us and put on the hope of salvation. Then it says to take the sword of the Spirit. Here's our only offensive weapon. It's the Word of God. Forget swords. I love swords. You know that. I didn't bring any. It's the Word of God. When we were reading through Matthew 4 earlier today, the young brother, again. No, it wasn't. It was the older brother. When we were reading through Matthew 4, how did Jesus respond all three times to the devil's temptations? It is written. What good is a sword? A sword holds your opponent at bay. If you don't have the sword, then he's going to get close to the rest of your armor and be hunting around a little, with a little more closer inspection as to where there might be any holes. The Word of God holds them at bay. Jesus answered three times, it is written. Jesus didn't answer any other way. He didn't go and make confession at the Catholic Church. He didn't thumb a rosary. He didn't do anything like that. He didn't ask for a prayer cloth from Benny Hinn. He simply said, it is written, it is written, it is written. All three times, and the devil left him. Do you know why? The devil has no answer for God's words of truth. You do not fully appreciate the book you hold in your hands. They are the only certain, absolute words of truth in the universe. You can feed your soul on those words, and they will protect you from the devil if you are able to give them back. That when you think, when you hear something from anyone that's not true, you are able to counter it with the Word of God. When you have a thought that's wrong, you can counter it with the Word of God. The only way that can ever happen is if you read it. If you read the Word of God, you're going to build your faith because the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart. For what purpose? That I might not sin against thee. It is written, it is written, it is written. And even the devil had to leave. Thank you, Lord. But brethren, the Bible wants to know how much of that Bible you've learned. You know, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, the Apostle Paul said, Why are you still needing to be taught when you people ought to be teachers? Have you learned the Word of God enough to teach others? Are you able to verbalize what the Word of God has to say? Only then would you be able to hold the devil at bay with the Word of God. Otherwise, your sword is just a handle. It doesn't even have a blade. If you haven't learned the Word of God, we need to read this Bible every day. We're trying to help you this year by giving you a daily devotional with just one little chapter of the Bible in which you can learn some of God's lessons to build your faith and equip yourself with the sword of the Spirit. We have five pieces of armor and one weapon now on this soldier of Jesus Christ. What is he doing? What activity is he engaged in? 
prayer. How often? Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now that is a real mouthful, that verse. But I think you can get the drift of it. Prayer is to be one heavy activity of a child of God that wants to walk with God and live a victorious life. How do you pray in the Holy Ghost? You walk in the Holy Ghost by obeying everything the Holy Spirit teaches in the Bible. Second, you follow His lead and what you ought to pray for through the Word of God. Third, you pray through the new man in a very sober and fervent way, reflecting on the new man. You are spiritually minded when you go to prayer, and you're praying for spiritual things more than carnal things, and you have an obedient life to back that up. That's praying in the Spirit. It's not complicated. It's not waiting to speak in tongues. That went away 1,936 years ago. It's praying in the Holy Ghost by walking in the Spirit of God and praying spiritually for spiritual things. You know, it says perseverance. It means it's something we can't quit. You cannot give up on prayer. And you've got to ask yourself, how much have you been praying? How much have I been praying? Have we let the devil have room in our lives by getting close to us because we haven't been praying enough? Because look at it, it says praying always with all prayer. And it says supplication. That's begging entreaties of the God of heaven to help us. And it says it twice. And it says to do it for all saints. That means we should be praying for one another. Do you get down and pray for one another in this church? We often pray for one another's carnal needs. Somebody tells us they're going to have an operation. So we all pray for that operation. But there's something more important than that. When somebody needs a new job, we want to pray for their new job. But there's something more important than that. And that is that we always pray for each other's spiritual protection from the wiles of the devil by the grace of God. That's what we ought to be praying for. We know that the great men of the Old Testament, whenever they faced danger, prayed. We're all facing danger. The danger of Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 18. And we ought to pray because of this danger. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man brings heavenly power against the devil. Then Paul transitions into verse 19 by saying, Pray also for me that utterance may be given me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Brethren at Ephesus, make sure you pray for me so that I get some opportunities to preach, even here in Rome, even in prison. What a man. What was he in prison for? Preaching the gospel. What was his life in danger for? Preaching the gospel. And what's he asking prayer for? To preach the gospel boldly. You know, I love it when I'm able to read over there in the last chapter of Philippians, I believe it is, where it says, They of Caesar's household greet you. He was preaching boldly even while he was in prison in Rome. And some of Caesar's household had been converted. And in ten seconds, Pudens and Claudia were two of them when they were from the British Isles and they took the gospel to the British Isles before Paul died. Ten seconds. We've been over that before. We'll be over it again. And for me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. There's the two prayer requests for ministers. One, that they'll be bold. Two, that they'll make it known. That they can make it manifestly plain as it's stated in other places in the New Testament. They want to make the word of God plain. He says in verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in bonds. I'm, a, I'm an ambassador of God in bonds. I'm in jail right now, but I still want to preach that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Ministers of God ought to be bold about what they have to proclaim. They are ambassadors of the high King of Heaven, and there's no reason to ever be ashamed of what they have to say. And they ought to say it with power and authority. Verse 21, 
but that ye also may know my affairs and how I do. And this is a personal touch as the Apostle closes out the epistles. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. That is, all things going on in Rome dealing, having to do with the Apostle Paul, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know our affairs, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. There's the personal touch. The Apostle Paul has unloaded on them, chapter 4, 5, and 6, in practical duties of godliness, but then he shows a personal touch and his personal affection for them by sending a faithful and beloved minister who would tell them how it went with him in Rome. Verse 23, Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are three things we all need to be great Christians, and Paul blesses them with those three things from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Love, peace, and faith. Faith, peace, and love. Those are the things we need, and so there's a great blessing. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. The Apostle Paul did not say, Grace be with all them that love the Lord Jesus Christ. Millions have sung, Oh, how I love Jesus. A small subset of that large number love Him in sincerity. Jesus Christ said, If you love me, keep my commandments. So you must ask yourself, How sincere is my love of Jesus Christ? Well, it's known by your passion for Him and His words. Do you love His words? Do you love to keep His commandments? Do you love what I've just explained to you? You've had explained to you putting on five pieces of armor. Do you remember what they are? Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, hope. One weapon, the Word of God. One activity, praying. If you were to do those things, you can withstand the devil in the evil day. You can be a victorious Christian. And Jesus Christ will supply you with all of his power and might because you're obeying him and walking in his spirit. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.